still getting used to um, working with a kid. You know, you think you, you think that you, uh, you know what it's like when you're not in that situation. But even with, uh, even with seeing what, what my wife goes through, trying to nurse and find places to do that, you realize how we've like crammed, you know, this perfect process that has been perfected over millions of years into these corners of, uh, you know, um, patriarchy of like, oh, you can breastfeed in this dark corner, <laughs> like in the theater no one uses. So it's, uh, you just, I never knew just how, how delicate the process was and how, how like if, um, if women pump instead of feeding, it ramps up production and um, if they miss a feeding, their body thinks that the baby doesn't need it anymore. So it really like has opened my eyes to a lot of things that I thought I was aware of, but we totally not aware of. So uh, it's been eye opening, but um, but actually being a dad has been pretty awesome. So she's we're lucky. She's healthy. She sleeps well. She just turned three months. She uh, let us go to Comic Con and she was okay with it. So yeah, we're we're pretty lucky. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a good thing you at least got to go to Comic-Con, right? <laughs> How's your day been? Been like you care, though. I'm aware that you're This is your host, Craig Biedemann. I'm really excited for this week's conversation with Brian McDonald. Brian is the director of Residence Life over at UCLA in Los Angeles. Uh, he oversees a pretty massive uh, housing system over there. And he uh, has come up a lot in the counterculture from Boston uh, to California. He has been a big uh, supporter of punk of comics, of many things counterculture throughout his career and throughout his life. So I'm really glad that I got to chat with him uh, on the podcast for this week. Also, he's a big cosplayer. He cosplays as Predator and has one of the most legitimate movie uh, production quality uh, costumes that exists in the world. So he's actually been able to do official... Um, uh, what do you want to call them official appearances as predator uh, and has made a lot of really cool connections and um, 
even presentations as Predator uh, within higher education. So you get to hear him talk a lot about that and a lot about his life coming up in education and what it's looked like for him to be a person uh, who came up in the punk realm of the 90s to then become an educator in this field that can be a little bit more uh, conservative on appearances, uh, but now has become a little bit more... Uh, uh, liberal in the way that we allow people to dress, quote unquote, allow people to dress and appear and exist and show up authentically. We get into a really good conversation about that uh, throughout the conver- throughout this episode as well. Um, just a lot of really fun um, learning takes place on this episode, and I was really glad that Brian was willing to spend so much time chatting with me. This week you get to hear tunes from the new Lilith album, which is called Safer Off. It comes out next week on October, or October, on August 9th. It's already August, y'all. Holy crap, it's August. This is coming out on August 1st. It's already August 9th when this album comes out. I cannot believe it's here. Then that, for my friends in education, means that the school year is about to ramp up and we're about to get a little busy. Hooray! But this new Lilith album, Safer Off, it comes out on Take This to Heart Records as well as Disposable America. Each uh, record label has a different vinyl pressing that you can get and you can pick up. Uh, I picked up the splatter pressing from Take This to Heart, but definitely check out the nice clear blue pressing that's over at Disposable America. Love supporting Disposable. Uh, If you didn't hear my conversation with Dustin earlier in the year, you should go back and check that one out. Also, if you didn't hear my conversation with Hannah from Lilith, you should go check that one out. There are links in the show notes. Uh, As I like to share every single week, uh, we are a part of uh, Connect EDU Network, where we share a bunch of different higher ed based podcasts and higher ed based content for your ears and for your eyes so that you can stay up to date on a bunch of cool people and a bunch of cool things that are happening in education. And as always, I like to share the po- the part of the podcast where I talk about the nonprofit that I run called The Art of Survival, where we share stories and art based around trauma survivors and the things that they have gone through in their life to find healing. And we try to create a space for that healing as well. Go to artissurvival.com to learn more about all that. Now, let's get to this conversation with Brian McDonald. Cool. So I'm sitting digitally with my friend Brian McDonald. How are you? Hey, I'm great, man. How are you? Doing okay. Just kind of trying to beat the heat. We have our air conditioner on, so if folks hear a buzz in the background, it's because I got an a- AC yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, classic New England summer. Yeah. I remember those. I, I grew up uh, just outside of Boston, which you know, so I'm, uh, I had uh, some of my first meetings that introduced me to soul-crushing bureaucracy were at UMass Boston when I was a student trustee as an undergrad at UMass Dartmouth in 1999. Hell yeah, student of trustee. UMass, of UMass system, oh yeah. That's that so was a great. Time. Yeah, yeah, Billy, Billy Bulger, the brother of famous uh, Whitey Bulger, was the president of the UMass system at the time, and his, uh, his wife helped me put on my, uh, my hood at graduation. Wow. <laughs> Emeril Lagasse was our commencement speaker at UMass Darwin. Emeril Lagasse? He was a big deal back then. Bam! Yeah, bam. That was the thing. 
That's wild. So, uh, I'm glad you're staying cool. Yeah, trying to. I mean, uh, I'm sure if you came around UMass Boston today, it would look vastly different than what you ever could have thought it looked like. It is. Yeah, there was. Uh, yeah, it was very different. I uh, I actually went to high school right around the corner. I went to BC High, which oh, is where yeah. I learned. That, where I learned that I was an atheist by going to a Jesuit high school. <laughs> um, there so. You go. Uh, very familiar with that area. <laughs> so you yeah. grew up going to school right across from the Globe. I did, yeah. I That's did. Awesome. Yep. It, I remember they had like good grilled cheese sandwiches in the Globe dining hall. That's all I remember. That's Occasionally great. we would run across Morrissey Boulevard and go to the Globe dining hall once in a while. Dang, then you're familiar with that area. That's actually exactly where I was hit with uh, the Yeah. Car. Yeah. And I remember that, yeah. yeah. You know, my grandmother grew up, my grandmother lived in South Boston when we were growing up, so uh spent a lot of time there, and actually that's kind of a part of the origin story of what we'll talk about later with uh, sci-fi and Predator and Predator cosplay. Uh, spending a lot of time with my grandmother in that neighborhood and my uncle introducing me and my brothers to, you know, um, Evil Dead and RoboCop and Terminator, all, all that stuff. Uh, happen very close to where you work every day. That's so great. Well, before we dig more into that, can you tell folks a little bit about who you are, what you do, and like uh, where you come from? Aside from yeah. this neighborhood where I work. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. Uh, so I. Uh, I'm the director of residential life at UCLA. Um, so, for the uninitiated, you know, in in. Uh, in higher education, we used to have this term called residence hall, and now we have a new one called dorm that I like to uh, <laughs> popularize more. Hell yeah. uh, but in all seriousness, um, we've got about 20,000 people who live with us at UCLA. I've been in this position for about five years. Uh, UCLA Residential Life has kind of an unusual portfolio of programs outside of just uh, your traditional res life stuff. Uh, UCLA has a history as a commuter school, so really for UCLA celebrating its centennial this year, so it's our, you know, 100 year 100 year birthday, and for many of those years we were a commuter school, and it wasn't uh, until, um, you know, the past 10, 20, 30 years where gradually we ramped up uh, the strategic initiative of being a uh, primarily residential campus, and so the quick growth. Uh, a lot of those extra student affairs resources came along with residential life. So we have some uh, great leadership programs, great program and event management, uh, great physical space here. So uh, I, my job keeps me pretty inter pretty busy, but it's never boring. We get to do uh, a lot of fun stuff here in Los Angeles, and uh, you know it's a it's a student population that I, I know uh a lot of your work around mental health and uh in how that impacts the um the student experience or things that i you know you share a lot of things that i click on and read because it's very relevant for our student population it's sort of that uh you know um the student population that can is very talented and um and can do amazing things but also is under intense pressure to perform and uh, so that's, we've got a little bit of everyone. We have a, a lot of first generation students. We have a lot of students who are third generation Bruins, everybody in between in state, out of state. So, uh, we are on the quarter system. So we're still in summer. Uh, so we open up in September and, 
you know, a lot of things happening in the UC system relative to our uh, national politics, a lot of things happening in Los Angeles. Uh, so the job keeps me busy for sure. I bet. I mean, I went to a uh, Pac-12 school as well in my undergrad. So at Oregon State, I grew up very familiar with UCLA, um, mm-hmm. watching many, many a sporting event against UCLA. But um, yeah, so I'm... I'm very familiar with the UC system, the Cal State system. Um, mm-hmm. Can you actually like differentiate for folks who may not know the difference between the UC system and the Cal State system? Yeah, absolutely. So once upon a time, there was a California master plan that sort of outlined how California would address uh, educating its population uh, across a number of different industries. And so UCLA has a really robust community college system has a really robust uh, Cal State system. So Cal State Long Beach, uh, San Diego State, all of those are in that family of, of state universities. And then there's the University of California system, whose president right now is uh, former Homeland Security head, Jan Napolitano. Yep. So it's, uh, you know, we, we play an interesting role with a number of different national policy uh, discussions and I think people look to the UC system for a, a lot of leadership on a lot of different things but uh, the UC system has a robust research agenda it has a lot of talented faculty and it has you know an undergraduate population that uh, that is very active very engaged um, and uh, at UCLA again we're celebrating our hundredth anniversary and uh, looking ahead to what the next hundred years means for UCLA and what it means for uh, the UC system in general. I think we ask ourselves a lot of questions relative to who goes to school, how much should it cost? Um, You know, our nation is asking those questions right now, especially as we see uh, legislation proposed by Elizabeth Warren to eliminate student loan debt and find new ways to pay for school. Uh, so, um, so I think, you know, the, what, what the UC system does, a lot of people pay attention to nationally. Yeah, for sure. And it's like a, it's a powerhouse of an education system. I remember growing up just adjacent to it and hearing how at one point the UC system, the UC system had to cap registration or enrollment, right? At some point? Uh, Before, so it's interesting because before my time, um, and it's funny how it intersects with another uh, another job. So uh, I my work my quick work history was uh, after grad school at University of Vermont, uh, which I finished in 2003. I moved and worked at UC Santa Barbara for a few years, and then uh, in 2006 I moved up to Boise, Idaho, and uh, helped. Uh, helped kick off some, you know, I was there with the vice president who's making a lot of changes and new, new student orientation programs, new student leadership programs, and uh, coincided with a lot of growth in the city, which the point you're referring to is when uh, the economy was struggling, um, there wasn't enough space at the UC system for all the people who uh, were getting in, and at that time, we actually saw a huge number of people uh, moving to Cal- moving from California to Boise, out-of-state population boomed in Boise, and even today now, if you look at again, that was about that was again 2006, and so on the positive side, I watched Boise State become more diverse. I watched uh, 
industries move from Southern California up to Idaho. Um, I think the Boise State is now something like 44% out of state, and it's a really great place to go to school um, if you're, you know, if you're looking for that type of experience. But Boise is also now sort of in this other group of cities that is growing faster than it can keep up with wages, and so you're seeing sort of a secondary impact of what you just described happening in Los Angeles and in California uh, a few years back. Now the repercussions of all that growth and cost of housing is impacting some of these places where Californians have moved to. Um, but yeah, I do, I do remember shortly after leaving uh, Santa Barbara, moving to Boise, that was one of the issues the system had to deal with. Yeah. And Our that, issue now, that's, now we have people coming here, but um, at least at UCLA, you know, we have high demand for housing, high demand for um, people to come here. And there's just, uh, there's more people who can get in than, um, than uh, I think people anticipate. For sure, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially for a lot of like state institutions. Going to Oregon State, I remember being there right around the time that some of the California schools were capping because a lot of them also came up to us. And so we were, and I think it's still happening. And so I saw that, that big migration of a bunch of Californian folks just moving up to Oregon, University of Oregon, Oregon State, Portland State, things like that. And so it's just there are so many people in California that they it's so yeah. hard to accommodate all of them. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what, what keeps you in residence life? What keeps you there? Uh, I think yeah, I think what keeps me here is that I'm I'm not a. Uh, it's interesting because I'm not a res lifer by trade. Um, okay. That was not career path, and I think even when I left grad school, uh, my first job out of grad school was that as an RD at UC Santa Barbara. But I was not I was not looking for that job. I wasn't, um, you know. I think I got into this field back in the you know late '90s, early 2000s, sort of in spite of um, the conventional entry points not because of um and i had a couple of (laughs) yeah um, i know you're you know a big part of your identity is you know is uh is punk and counterculture and um and do diy and that was very much uh, my experience as well um i got i mean going to school was where i met such a great network of people and found community um, but you know the UMass system in the late '90s is not what it was now. There was still a lot of, uh, you know, um, it's funny when we get challenged as an industry on administrative bloat and other um, other things like that. When we run so much leaner and we are responsible for every dollar compared to you know how things used to operate. Um, so I really, you know, um, I got introduced to this field because I, I was. Uh, interested in even back then um, the way police treated students of color, um, the way that I experienced certain issues within the legal system, um, the way that uh, uh, you know just the, the the general sense of and the general sense of you know college can change people's lives. Long story short, uh, it's funny because when I when I interviewed for the job in Santa Barbara, it was very last minute, and I, uh, a friend who had worked there said, "Oh." got to throw in a resume, you know, last minute. And um, so I, this is when ACPA was where he found a job, not NASPA. And so ran down there, threw a resume in, they saw me in a suit and they, oh, and I should say, I, I learned about the job sort of like at a bar offsite, not 
traditional networking. Uh, put a resume in. They interviewed me. They were like, yeah, he was okay. And then they saw me later dressed down in like a beanie and shorts and a band t-shirt. And they're like, yes, he could work here. He, <laughs> he, he students would connect with him. So um, I think from a very long, from a, a long time ago, you know, my first tattoos were given to me in a basement, you know, in the summer of 1996. Um, yeah. You know, just uh, I think my first day in college on move-in day, um, we found a body piercer and set up a body piercing shop in our room. Like, it was just a crazy time, um, and things were different. But it's th those type of places is where I happened to find community and started to develop um, a sense of self that I think a lot of people who um, who find community in the in in punk and in music um, who maybe didn't find community in sports or in school or in their neighborhoods or anything like that was really important for me. And I think that carried over into college. And I've always kept sort of that idea that college should be a time where, um, and it's a very special time where we in student affairs have the ability to shape the experience where everyone um, can move, everyone can progress, everyone can find community. And how do we, you know, this is why I was actually tempted to, to you know, the, the idea of overseeing a, a, a residential life department um, when I left my job at Rutgers was appealing because it was, uh, you know, I, I find that in residential life as an industry, there's such a focus on highly, 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 highly engaging a very small amount of the population versus medium engaging everyone. Um, and it's become very um, prescribed. And, uh, you know, I think if the average college student pop their ear into a residential life meeting or a residential life conference, the, the level of vernacular and acronyms and what we call things and our conventional wisdom and rituals around how we do our work um, has become so insular that I don't know that any student would know what they were talking about. Uh, and so um, for me, it's, it's been a real opportunity to, to think, how would we do residential life if we were to start over. What are the things that we would do, and how do we approach our work with the spirit of, um, you know, if we have professional staff who live on, or if we have staff who don't live on campus but work in residential life, how do you really embrace this idea that your res halls and your dorms are learning labs that you just get to do good work and um, maybe not worry so much about some of the conventional things that we've done over and over again and um, and start fresh. And uh, to be able to do that at a place like UCLA has been really rewarding. Um, and it's also challenging because no doubt a big part of residential life work is uh, emergency uh, preparedness and crisis response. And no matter how you um, slice and, and dice and refresh some of the other things that we do, that part of the job is still there. And it's very high burnout and it's very high stakes. And some of our RAs deal with things that even when I was a professional resident director after grad school, um, I never would have imagined encountering that some of our undergrads encounter now relative to stress, anxiety, suicidal ideation, sexual assault. So, um, so that part of the job is still there, but I think how we think about proactively addressing community to reduce those uh, types of incidents are what really keep me going. Along with just, I work with some incredible human beings. I just work with amazing people 
um, across the whole spectrum of their career, people who have come up through student affairs and have made it their profession, as well as people who have come from other industries into this work, whether it be the entertainment industry, whether it be uh, public mental health, whether it be uh, a number of different places who've now found a home in higher education. Uh, I've got great, great colleagues both here and, and across the country. That's fantastic because uh, what you were talking, it made me think about how there's a lot of, like, it makes me feel really thankful that you're doing that work because there's a lot of folks in our field who would just kind of like settle for doing the same things the same way they've been done instead of like, can we like rethink this for just like a second? Can we, yeah. can we just like figure out like some new approaches to like how we do training and how we um, just carry out like some meetings and whatnot? Because a lot of our field has been so predicated on like norms that may or may not be effective and helpful. And so the fact that you're willing to at least challenge that stuff, I mean, it definitely goes to your 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 upbringing in the the counterculture as well um have you along the way throughout your career you're what how how old are you now uh 41 so 40 yeah okay so you're about 10 years older than me um along the way have you had a lot of like pushback from some of your ideas or even like albeit uh being a tattooed professional um i know that you are pretty uh like visibly tattooed as well so i'm curious about the things that are a little bit pushing back on those norms and maybe some of the pushback you've had along the way yeah you know i think um i think my so one of the things i'll say is that um a lot of the ways that I expressed myself when I was in college that I think were even less of a norm than they are now. Um, not that I, I think there's still a lot of issues that we face with, even if even if people can go to work with a tattoo here and there, I would say that there's still a lot of, there's limits and there's still this conventional idea of what professional dress is. And, and so even if some things have become more uh, accepted in certain venues, uh, I would say for me, um, I really did feel that earlier in, in my career. And, uh, you know, I remember I remember even just like, I'm sure there's many people who have this experience where it was like, it wasn't until the very end of college where I went to one of those like etiquette dinners. And I was like, wait, 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 everyone. You're telling me but my whole life there's been like a rhyme and reason to where all these forks and knives are. And I just had no idea. <laughs> um, so I think it's for me, that's like a, that is connected to a lot of other things that are sort of that the, the the hidden the hidden language and hidden rules of, of professional life and things that I was just so I would say that on the one hand um, that stuff was definitely there but two I think I was just too oblivious to notice some of it um, and then there was probably other things I was doing that were uh, less there was probably things that I was doing that was demonstrating less professional savvy early in my career, uh, especially in grad school, than those parts of my identity. I think that the, at least in student affairs, there was a, uh, there. I think there was still um, one of the things that uh, kind of got my foot in the door was that due to music and due to some of my other influences. Um, 
I, I was pretty outspoken around, you know, social justice and anti-racist work. I mean, I think, I think like 2004 Brian would think that 2019 Brian is a total sellout and doesn't work hard enough. Uh, <laughs> on those. But I think that the conversation has just changed, and and I think uh, you know it's a it's it's sort of a different. Um, there's there's different. Um, it's, a, it's just a different time with uh, social media and how community forms and, uh, <clears throat> and and some of those things. But I think those those issues, um, I think, allowed me to um, the the field itself was a little more accepting of who I presented as. But certainly applying for jobs and um, you know especially in in. Uh, certain places that I've worked more so than others um, I would say that I had to choose when I would fully be myself versus when I would uh, dress up I think that there's um, where I sit now in 2019 there's still probably times where I, I think about um, even tattoos right like I would love to go down the, the, the shop and get a neck tattoo or tattoos on my hands but I'm you know I'm waiting <laughs> I don't know that I could do that right now even in 2019 so it's something I still think about I, and I think it you know where it intersects with what privileges do I bring into the workplace that um, might allow me to push boundaries in other places but I I've had enough interactions with students where when they see me as an administrator and they hear my my stories and they see some of the tattoos and then they're able to tell their parents see look like an administrator has tattoos and I, I have a few students who are just covered whose parents were just petrified they wouldn't go yeah. anywhere after college who they're like it's a role model for them and it's a it's a way for them to see themselves uh, professionally and I think um, for me the tattoo and music world are so closely related to uh, art and I think art is something that we have uh, pushed out of curriculum so much in K through 12 that, you know, art and music are some of those places where, you know, I didn't understand certain, the, the depth of certain um, social justice issues until music and uh, art were able to, to explain those to me in a way that wasn't just with language, right? And I think that uh, how we bring art into the world of our students is, uh, and we have some great staff at UCLA, by the way, who actually really push hard to bring art uh, into the lives of our students every day. I think tattoos and, and music are two two really important ways that I've I've tried to do that. Um, so I would say overall, I do see still that that pensiveness. I was having a conversation with uh, someone just just a couple weeks ago who's just starting their career, who's you know wondering what to do, and and this is actually good advice I think for uh, a lot of a lot of people who are entering the field, and I, I say this with respect to the fact that it is a tough job market, and sometimes you just got to land that first job after grad school to build a foundation and then move through your options. But um, I, uh, I think there's a temptation to show up to an interview sometimes and be someone who the interviewer wants to hire instead of just being who you are. Yeah. And yeah. I think that can lead to a lot of people... Um, a lot of employers hiring people who, uh, you know, hiring the person who interviewed and not the person who actually shows up on the first day. And uh, I would never fault anyone who's who needs to get a job because we all know that there's bills to pay and loans to pay off. 
But I think as people progress and look at their options to find ways to connect and network in places where you can be yourself um, as a means to be happy at work. Because I, I know that I've been really lucky that in terms of, you know, when I'm at interviews and when I'm asking certain questions of, of my supervisors, uh, it's allowed me to know that I'll be able to show up as myself um, more often than not. Um, and again, I say that with respect to a lot of the privileged identities that I, I have, but um, I think that, you know, when we look at student affairs, right, and we look at, um, we want this to be something that a lot of, or any field, really, when people go through a university experience that um, we need everyone's contributions in every profession, and we don't need anxiety blocking creative thought. And if someone is going into the workplace, either covering a oppressed identity or covering a tattoo, that inhibits what that person can bring to the workplace yep. uh, or to grad yep. school or to, uh, you know, community-based work. So, um you know, I've I've had the a really I've been lucky that during my career I've had a lot of time to process through this, and I actually just I've really lost touch with um, I don't know what it's like these days. You know, you mentioned you're you're ten years younger, and I'm sure you have a different experience too of uh, what it's like going to work, and um, I, I don't know what the I don't know what the rules are really um, across the board. I would suspect that they're different based on where people are. Oh, one hundred percent. I I think what I what I hear a lot of is there is a lot of um, almost code switching we have to have even regardless of your identities we kind of have to show up differently depending on the situation but like still being true to yourself is like the the central through line to how we actually show up for like interviews for how we go to meetings with certain administrators things like that like i do a whole talk for our college of management that's a professional development talk on authenticity in the workplace and how to show up and actually live authentically in your and unapologetically while staying true to yourself and still meeting the professional needs of your space and your surroundings and a lot of the times what comes up is like we're not able to be authentic all the time it sucks yeah. but it's it's true and i i got more heavily tattooed after i got out of grad school because i landed a job that i'm really secure in and i'm really comfortable in and i could be more visibly tattooed and now like like you said it's a it's a really cool way that students connect with me now and it's become a part of my identity that allows them to see that there's a professional here on their campus that um, can honestly help them out in so many ways and also give them tips on uh, where to find a good artist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but you're right. I mean, even being authentic relative to people's understanding, I mean, you, you've got a broad uh, and deep uh, you know, music is a, is a big part of for your, your life. I, I know this. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, you know, the, the genres of, of music that, that were so impactful to me, you know, you, you try to explain what that meant to you in that time. And, um, you know, it's a genre, the genres like, you know, punk and hardcore that people don't even understand what they are. So how do you even begin to have a conversation about why, um, you know, DIY culture and, and things like that stemmed from it for you. 
um, was also a challenge earlier earlier on. Um, or you know, like uh, you know, um, referencing. You know, we've had conversations about referencing pro wrestling and other pop culture yeah. reference points in leadership and in in higher ed. And and I think uh, you know, regardless of where people find community. Um, whether it's playing board games, whether it's playing video games, whether it's reading comic books, whether it's writing fan fiction, um, these are all things that you know. And it's back to our earlier point that we were talking about of why why is there this um, prescribed method of how to do student affairs? And I've thought about this a lot because I think student affairs was this corner of higher education that really had to justify its existence for a long time. And uh, and we had the roles, right? We didn't need, um, you know, we, we absolutely now need to produce the research necessary to show people that we're accountable and that we matter. But when student affairs had, you know, a big boom uh, during the rights movement, it was, you know, it was deans of students who were addressing campus protests. It was not presidents. It was not faculty. And so student affairs had a role. And beyond that, we started to expand into competencies and professional standards and master's degrees and, and doctorates, all of which I support. But now it's almost like there's this um, almost narcissistic attitude around student affairs that I see um, where um, it's almost like this, um, I don't know how to put it, but there's such, there's been such energy around trying to um, justify student affairs as an entity, that there's just certain affronts that happen when, you know, again, we'll, we'll joke around it, but I've, I've had, I've heard student affairs people say that if someone says dorm in an interview, they're not going to hire them. Yep. Or like, why, why do we, why do we react like vehemently to, to certain things when, um, you know, um, it's just sometimes people trying to relate to us. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, so I think now that I think our field is maturing as a field and we're going to go through some of these things, I think it's important for leaders in the field in some of those conventional places of leadership to start trying to recalibrate how much energy we put into certain things. Um, because I think, uh, you know, there's national conversations about what we do and it's really interesting to see student affairs issues be some of the issues that are brought into national conversation. I mean, just now, uh, my friends in Idaho are dealing with a letter that the state legislature sent to their new president saying that they shouldn't be doing things like black graduation and rainbow graduation or scholarships for their cultural center, right? And so um, that's going to take a certain, uh, a certain level of relatability to move through. Um, and so it's a give and take of, you know, where do you, where do you lean on professional competencies versus, you know, how, how would you talk to someone about this work who had never heard of college before, right? If you bump into somebody who's a first generation student at an airport, you know, um, correcting them when they say dorm instead of residence hall probably isn't a good strategy for helping them understand their potential in college. And uh, I know that's sort of a you know a ridiculous example, but I think if we if we delve into how we communicate and what hills we try to die on, um, I think there's some good uh, recalibration we can do there around sort of what gets us excited. 
All right, time for the music break portion of the podcast. Normally we save this for after the second segment of the podcast, but I'm going to throw it in here right in the very middle of the episode so that we can break up the conversation a little bit more because Brian and I got into a whole big conversation that took well over half an hour, and I want to just uh, play you some tunes right now so that we can then get into the rest of the conversation. Right now, you're going to hear the song Vacation from the new Lilith album, which is called Safer Off. It comes out next week through Take This to Heart Records, as well as Disposable America. You can get copies of CDs and of vinyl from both of those labels by going to TakeThisToHeartRecords.com or Disposable-America.com. You can also also go to lilisttheband.bandcamp.com here's some more tunes uh check out the shirts and the physical copies of the album that you can also check out there um you can also listen to my conversation with hannah liuzzo which came out last summer almost exactly a year just over a year ago we we talked about the last single that they put out and you can listen to that uh through the uh through the website that i have here and I don't know why I'm speaking high, but I'm really excited to play this song with you, uh, for you. It is called Vacation. It is by Lilith. Here you go.
That was Vacation by Lilith. If you like what you heard, go to liliththeband.bandcamp.com, go to takethistoheartrecords.com, or go to disposable-america.com and get yourself a physical or digital copy of the new album, Safer Off. It comes out next Friday. So I'm giving you some time. I just, I'm playing you some songs from the album. You need to go check it out. It is so good. It's so good. I got a nice advanced copy of the album. Hannah was very nice enough to send it over to me and it is just wonderful and make sure to listen to our conversation from last summer if you haven't heard it already please do so now let's go to back to this conversation with brian mcdonald now let's dig into um one of your big passions in life cosplay can you tell folks what like your your kind of your your cosplay like outfit is that what you call it? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a full on costume. I mean costume? it's a I, yeah. So I cosplay as Predator. It is it's a pretty movie well known prop. though, right? Like it's yeah, professional. It's a, yeah, it's a movie prop quality uh, professional costume designed by a uh, company called Aliens Effects in San Diego. I met this guy online, and he's a retired firefighter. He uh, took a bunch of classes through uh, the Stan Winston school. Stan Winston was the guy who created uh, the Predator along with a number of other uh, iconic um, creatures. And I do want to say, too, that as we talk about Predator and Stan Winston and special effects, there's a great book for anybody out there called The Lady from the Black Lagoon. And I share this because uh, Millicent Patrick was a woman who uh, actually worked and designed and created the creature from the Black Lagoon and got no credit for it. And when I look at Predator, I definitely see that Predator is a derivative of the creature from the Black Lagoon in a lot of ways. And so I, I plug that as a book for anybody who's, uh, who wants to learn more about a, an amazing woman in special effects who did not get the credit she deserved for decades uh, for creating one of the universal monsters. Um, and so Predator uh, was a movie that, you know, in, in, the, in 1987, you know, you couldn't stream things. <laughs> so you had VHS movies that you would just pop in, watch, rewind. And I must, you know, there's certain movies that are just in that canon of 80s sci-fi that just were um, such a big part of my childhood and, and growing up. Um, and uh, I would say that, you know, relative to our earlier conversations about you know, tattoos, I would say that um, I did reach a point in my life previous to finding music and finding community and, and tattoo culture and all that where, you know, um, growing up, I, I experienced some level of bullying and I, I didn't really fit in in a lot of places. And so uh, I did not move in the direction of standing out and continuing to antagonize. I, I kind of faded uh, into the background and tried to just not stand out in any way possible. And I think during those years, I lost a lot of connection to a lot of things that, that were really important to me. And thanks to my youngest brother, who you know through Newberry Comics, uh, Kevin reintroduced me to you know when you know we we listened to a lot of the same music, and you know he he introduced me to a lot of to music, and he was in bands, but he really got me reading comics again. And he and I shared a lot of fandom for sci-fi you know we grew up watching star wars and watching all these sci-fi movies and when we were uh living apart from each other we would keep each other going with 
you know, this is coming out of Comic-Con and this action figure is coming out. And, you know, we would keep in touch that way. And uh, about three years ago, you know, I'd always dreamed of, you know, everyone said, oh, you go to Comic-Con every year. I've been going for like 14 of the last 15 years. And you, you dress up. No, no, I don't dress up. But, uh, you know, I, I a few years ago just went ahead and, and invested in this Predator costume. And, uh, and it's amazing. It's um, sourced from original parts from the original 1987 movie. And I'm about six foot eight when I wear the costume. I'm normally about six five. It's so, <laughs> that's so huge. I've seen pictures I, of you like I next to people, that. and it looks insane. <laughs> yeah, it's out of control. It, it's like it, it's you know, if it wasn't for years of jujitsu and martial arts and getting really sweaty, I I would be really uncomfortable in it because you're. It's like wearing. Um, it's just it's all vinyl and resin, and it's huge and it's heavy and. Um, but when you, once you step into it and people start running up to you and it's, it's so crazy how, like how many little kids, like how many times I've had the experience of like a six year old run up to me and their parents are like, Oh, it's his favorite movie. I'm like, what? Um, there's a few great shots of me from a couple of years ago at Beyond Fest in LA where, uh, baby predators is what she's referred to online. She's probably eight years old now or so, but Great photos of me and this girl who was about six years old, who parents parents made her a costume, um, which is pretty amazing. So it's there's a big fandom out there, um, and it's a it's cool looking alien. Not all the sequels have been great, but um, you know it's uh, it's complete immersion into this other uh, character that it, I just bought to wear a costume to to wear occasionally at a comic convention or to do still photography in, but. Uh, very quickly I started getting offers to appear in media projects and I'm just like I've never done any acting classes or physical movement classes or anything <laughs> like that um, and so very quickly had to start learning how to do those things because uh, some of the you know I did one for Bat in the Sun which you know millions of views on their videos I did uh, a video for Nerdist um, where it was the Nerdist uh, holiday party and predator technology got lost in the white elephant gift exchange <laughs> and ensues uh and then i uh, was on fox sports with terry bradshaw and jimmy johnson last year uh promoting the last movie they put out the predator and that was really fun too so this turned into the weirdest side gig in higher education it totally um, is <laughs> yeah uh, and so then it spurred the idea of doing the talk a couple of years, uh, a couple of months back at NASPA in LA, uh, because you know I think the Predator represents for me a lot of things I cared about growing up that stimulate a lot of creativity and passion and and also improvement too. I think that fandom is just an interesting thing to look at whether you're talking about the you know fandom of uh, Game of thrones or the fandoms related to star wars or fandoms that are in more niche pop culture comics and things like that where you see a lot of the issues of privilege and representation in media playing out in very different and interesting ways and i think it's totally okay to critique your fandoms um but i think it uh um it's something that stimulates a lot of creativity but also is deeply connected to um you know for me anxiety and um, being who you want to be and breaking the mold and 
and doing things that don't necessarily seem like they go together to, to produce a new result, uh, all sort of played into that particular talk. Um, and then just did, you know, just got back from San Diego uh, where um, I do have a role. So at San Diego Comic-Con, <clears throat> this was our ninth year, <clears throat> excuse me, of uh, moderating panels related to uh, higher education and pop culture. So Comic-Con International, who's like the parent uh, nonprofit that runs San Diego Comic-Con, they have education uh, in part of their nonprofit mission. And so, uh, and it's the, this was the 50th year of San Diego Comic-Con. It goes back a long way. And they've had diversity and LGBT initiatives for a long time. Um, they've had, uh, you know, it's a place where a lot of community forms around a lot of interesting identities. And especially now, um, where there's been issues in pop culture that have uh, spurred um, what has been coined as geektivism. So every year there'll be, you know, sometimes there'll be the Fred Phelps, Westboro Baptist Church people protesting at Comic-Con, and then there'll be counter-protests. Uh, there's uh, two years in a row, the Nerds of Color uh, website and community has led a rally for Rose, which is Kelly Marie Tran, who... Uh, was Rose Tico in uh, in the Star Wars franchise, who uh, was chased off social media because of a lot of sexist and racist and just fanboy BS. And so there's been uh, signs of support for that character and for that actress. Uh, so it's a cool little community. And so we do, uh, we're part of a four-day track that's actually at the San Diego Library off-site that's part of this, the Comic-Con program track. And so for, you know, four days of Comic-Con, the library hosts panels for librarians, K through 12, uh, faculty research, and then higher education. So this year we're able to do panels on career advice for college geeks, uh, caring for the nerd mind, which dives into to, uh, mental health, and where you can pull inspiration from pop culture to have meaningful conversations and interventions uh, around mental health. Uh, we... Um, so there was a, a panel on uh, gender in esports and in board games, which is, you know, as esports has grown, student affairs is actually the, um, a lot of times either recreation or other aspects of, you know, student activities have jumped into esports yep. and are doing some really amazing things around uh, inclusion and community in those spaces. So, uh, yeah, Comic-Con has become... Uh, uh, a really fun place actually for professional development and for networking and for uh, for for actually direct relationship to uh, the students I work with and the staff I work with and the faculty I work with. It's one of the coolest random side projects to have in uh, as an educator too because it, it has a lot of through lines it has a lot of connections but at the same time like no one would really think to make those connections because <laughs> yeah. like on sequitur yeah um but i but dig I think it i dig it i think it's so great and i think as maker culture tends to be something that we hear more about and as you know it's not just engineers that have maker spaces sometimes student affairs is home to maker spaces and fabrication labs and uh you know um learning a new skill set whether it's costume design or 3d printing or um any uh any sort of you know playing around with circuits that can just start to um, create new pathways in your brain or, you know, I have a, a colleague who does uh, a lot of research on um, 
you know, learning a martial art and what that does to just you know, learning how to learn, I think is such an important skill now. Uh, and where in student affairs can we, again, related to our, our other conversation about just one way of doing things, um, it's helped me under, like start to learn a new skill set, which is trying to repair this thing and trying to, uh, you know, figure out what holds it together and how to actually pose in it and how to move in it. And uh, it's it's been awesome. It's been it's been great. And uh, I have a very supportive wife who, uh, you know, I remember, hey, what <laughs> I show her the costume? <laughs> when is that going to happen? Uh, so it's um, it's fun. That's really great. Um, when it comes to uh, the the talk you gave at <clears throat> NASPA, what was the response that you got from folks? Because uh, didn't you do it in full costume? Yeah, so I uh, I came out in full costume. Like Judas Priest was blaring, and uh, yeah. I came out I came out in the costume, and uh, I started with a pre-recorded video uh, in my slides of me sort of articulating being in my head <clears throat> and setting the setting the tone for uh, a conversation around anxiety around um, the the things we convince ourselves in our head uh, that aren't really true and uh, and if our ego is in overdrive and we're overreacting to uh, as a result of either you know trauma PTSD uh, other things that cause anxiety or depression, uh, living in our head and not getting out of it um, is just a, it's a really bad feedback loop. And uh, putting this costume on and just going for it was sort of me post-counseling, post-trying to address certain things. And uh, either from a standpoint of, oh my gosh, like, do I look stupid in this thing? <clears throat> to just... I'm in a suit. What if I have a panic attack and crap my pants? Yeah. Um, you know, um, is like, you've got to put yourself out there. And, and I think that for me, a lot of my anxiety was, you know, what your, what body and your mind are interpreting as a worst case scenario really is not a worst case scenario. It might be connected to something that happened. It was pretty bad in childhood or in some other scenario. Uh, but you're past that. You've moved past it. And now having an inappropriate physiological and psychological reaction to something that is no longer life-threatening um, can be can just hold you back. Uh, and so that was the impetus for the, for the talk. Uh, and uh, the reaction's been great, actually. It was really funny. We had an Akuho intern working for us, and she, she met, met me and was like, you look really familiar. And then she was like, oh, my gosh, you did the Predator talk. <laughs> And I was the like, predator yeah, talk. And, and she actually was someone who <clears throat> um, has a bunch of tattoos and a bunch of metal in her face. And she was like, I didn't know if I could be myself at work, but I've met the director and now I know I can. So it was great. Um, but she was in the audience and she saw it. Uh, I don't know what the response has been online. I know it's posted on YouTube, but uh, I haven't really... Um, I haven't really been able to spend too much time with kind of posting it and, and, and engaging that way, but it is up. It's on the NASPA YouTube channel, and uh, they edited it pretty well. They edited out the part where I was like trying to get the helmet off <laughs> to do the rest of the talk, and uh, so they did a good job. Nice. I'll make sure to share it so folks can watch it. Um, oh. 
No, that's actually really, that connects something to the first part of our conversation and like seeing um, our, like see, ha having the newer generation of like students seeing themselves in us as professionals because when I went and interviewed for graduate school at University of Kansas, I met Chris Stone Sawalish. Are you connected with him at all? Do you know him at all? Uh, here. Um, he's in Res Life uh, at Michigan State now, but um, I met him and he's like covered in tattoos. And he was like one of the first professionals I saw that was like covered. And I was like, dude, tell me everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he just like helped me really. And he still to this day helps me out with um, like professional development stuff as someone who like tries to push the boundaries and, and whatnot. And so like, it's nice when those types of students like can latch on and connect through whatever way and whatever means necessary. Like I even go and do talks at other colleges and I'll have students come up to me and be like, I never thought, that someone who like is alternative like you or like me could have a job like this. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, the times that they are changing and like they're only going to get like people are only going to start responding to us more now that there are more of us speaking up and taking up space. So as long as you continue doing that, there's probably a good chance you're going to get through and be successful. I mean, I would hope. Yeah, and it also works too when you're like networking with, you know, when I when I meet someone in LA who, you know, if I meet someone who works for, um, you know, in the entertainment industry or in business or in some of the other like interesting, when they're like, wait, you like do this stuff at UCLA and, you know, you look like this and you connect in this way that uh, being relatable, again, back to the student affairs thing, it's great if you're hyper relatable to people in student affairs. But you've got to be relatable to people across the board who are stakeholders in higher education if you want to help students achieve their goals, if you want to bring more people to the table. And, uh, yeah, I think this is yeah, – I think everyone's got their way to do it. Um, and I think uh, how we cultivate that more in, in, in all of our professionals is, you know, um, go through your student affairs graduate program, but don't lose who you were before. You know, mm -hmm. continue to beat person as a through line to who you are and not just absorb this like student affairs identity that I think gets uh, kind of rubber stamped on everyone when they leave their program. That's really great advice. And I, uh, I feel like I give similar advice to folks who enter the field and who... Um who are, even those who want to enter the field, I'm like, this is these are some things you should know before you enter. Do you still want to yeah. go through this? Um, yeah. Yeah, and continue following up. So that's really great advice to end on, I think. Awesome.
I hope you've enjoyed these tunes from Lilith throughout the episode. Now let's finish up the conversation with Brian McDonald. I'm going to ask you some random uh, lightning round kind of questions because I'm curious. Um, what's your favorite color? Blue. Blue. What's your favorite type of food? Uh, specific or besides, broad? Uh, specifically, if I get like Desert Island, only food I could eat forever would probably be pho. Mm, nice. Meal soup. Do you have yeah. a specific specific type of protein you put in it? Uh, I usually go with meat, but uh, I've been eating less meat these days. Um, more uh, eating a lot of fish lately. Meat. Uh, I love a rare burger and rare steak, but it's. Uh, I you know when you hit forty, your body just wants more stuff and less stuff. So I'm trying to pay attention to that. Starting to listen to your body at forty. That's smart. Yeah, finally. <laughs> I'm doing it at 30, so hopefully by 40 I'll have it knocked. I'll have it narrowed down. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite place you've ever visited, or traveled? Favorite place that I've ever visited. I mean, San Diego is one of my favorite places to go, but uh, I didn't travel much until actually when I moved to California, um, and so um, you know, one of the places that I've only been to one time in terms of traveling was Zion. On National Park, I just felt like I was the, on Mars, you yeah. know. And uh, those are the kind of things that I, I think being in the outdoors and just like disconnecting from all the noise is really important. And uh, and uh, yeah, that that or there was a trip to the Wallowa Mountain Range in Oregon. And you're yeah. from you you spent, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's like protected land. And I was out there with someone who had you know, a PhD in forestry, so it allowed them to be out there, and it was like being in a national park with only five people, and it was incredible. That's super great. Um, what is a favorite book of yours? Favorite book of mine? Um, I, I mean, the book that started a lot of my uh, work with college students was Simon Sinek's Start With Why. That's mm -hmm. probably the book that I've, like, did the most people. Um, and, uh, I would say, um, if I were to go the comic route, I would say anyone who has ever wanted to pick up comics and really loves fantasy, horror, sci-fi, you never picked up a comic book, go read Lock and Key by Joe Hill. Joe Hill is Stephen King's son, uh, and, uh, Lock and Key is, for me, one of the, as far as, like, fiction and fun, uh, one of the... One of the best things I've ever read, so highly recommend. Nice. Do you have a favorite movie, current or even all time? Um, I think that's a that's a big question. Um, I would <laughs> say um, all time. If I was, I would have to put like <clears throat> you know, there's like five that I would put in in there of like. Go for it. Uh, Star Wars, Predator, Original Alien, The Thing. Um, Big Trouble in Little China. Those are probably like the ones I have such an affinity for of, of, of caring about growing up. Um, trying to think of if anything uh, recent has has popped up. I'd have to think about that more. I 
it's funny because like one of the things about having a, a, a baby is you have less time for movies. Mm. And uh, <laughs> so now I got to like cross into like, okay, once she starts watching movies, what are we going to watch together? What am I going to introduce Charlie to? Um, one of my buddies, also... one of my buddies, when he started having kids, just like now he just watches Frozen six times a day. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! <laughs> just like fully tattooed punk dude that owns a record label, just watches Frozen all the time. Watches Frozen all the time. <laughs> yep. Um, so you said music's a big deal for you. Um, all time, what are a couple bands for you? Uh, all time, I, I have uh, you know. Um, uh, in September, I think me and Kelly's first date uh, after you know five months of raising Charlie will be uh, seeing Iron Maiden in LA. So I haven't seen them in about uh, it'll be like thirteen years, I think. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're uh, they're they're you know love love Maiden. Um, let's see. Uh, I'll, maybe one that listeners aren't as super familiar with who I, I wish they would be uh, Rocky Erickson sort of the um, founder uh, the uh, um, uh, unrecognized founder of psychedelic rock, rock passed away very recently um, you know he, he made incredible music through the late 60s, 70s, early 80s and struggled with uh, his own mental health, he experienced some electroshock therapy uh, at the hands of you know, when he was incarcerated and uh, had a big comeback and was able to make music again. But uh, Rocky, R-O-K-Y, Erickson, uh, is, uh, is a phenomenal musician. You'll start listening to his stuff. And, you know, he's, he was writing about, like, zombies and vampires and stuff like that, like, decades before the Misfits were. Like, he was, he's, he's incredible. Um, and just music is amazing. And somebody who just passed away recently, who not enough people know about, so um, I'll leave it at that. Nice, love that. Um, I guess what soundtracks what, too. What? I'll, uh, the Twin Peaks soundtrack gets played a lot in my house. Oh, nice. So you you're a Twin Peaks person then too? Yeah, yeah. So it's gonna transition to TV. So I imagine Twin Peaks is up there for you. Yeah, Twin Peaks. This was uh, I think this was the most recent. To hear is uh, oh, sick. the uh, 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 Asian Cooper, uh, you know, going on season three. I thought was so amazing. I, yeah, Twin Peaks was one of the shows that you know seventh eighth grade. Uh, my uncle really got me into uh, you know David Lynch potentially at a too early of an age, and uh, <laughs> it's actually one of the reasons why like, Star Trek: The Next Generation and X Files. Uh, were um, kind of spoiled for me because of how crazy Twin Peaks was and that I was taking that in at such, such an early age. That, um, But I loved the last season. Uh, I thought it was some of the best TV uh, I've ever seen. And um, yeah, uh, David Lynch brought his Festival of Disruption to L.A. last year and uh, Kelly and I went and uh, it, was, it was pretty great. He does a lot of work around transcendental meditation and bringing that into spaces where traditionally there's uh, more punitive methods of, uh, you know, incarceration or punishment. And uh, I think what I loved about Twin Peaks and, you know, a lot of David Lynch's stuff is he doesn't answer the question for you. I think with a lot of TV now, people get so frustrated by 
you know, give me the answer, tell me exactly what happened, answer every single question. And he really, you know, season three leaves you with a lot of moments where you just need to decide what happened for yourself. Yeah. And that can, that can be uncomfortable for a lot of people. Hmm. I like that take on it because I've heard a lot of different things about that season. So I'm really, and I couldn't, I don't, I didn't have the attention span for it. I think it takes a specific person to get into Twin Peaks and it just wasn't me. And so I've come to terms with that. Um, but I, I love the fandom that that so many people have found so much joy from it. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, it's tough to get through a big chunk of season two, um, just because I think the studio didn't know where they were going, and David Lynch, you know, talks about that experience. But I think people can watch season three as its own thing, and uh, and even if they didn't complete seasons one and two or Fire Walk with Me, can can gain an interesting experience from for sure nice well that's all i got do you have any like final message or anything you want to like leave people with before we uh close out well you know i I think like the last thing i read today i forget where i read it but um been thinking a lot about uh you know um our overachievement culture and the stress olympics and i would just say that if anybody is actually uh, listening and uh, wants any uh, unsolicited advice, <laughs> um, I would just say with the new academic year, try to work on the things that you love and that are important, but save something for yourself. Uh, as someone who's adapting from like being an overachiever at work to now wanting to overachieve as a husband and as a dad, uh, it's really hard to do it all. And uh, I hope that in this year that I'm sure we'll still be carrying a lot of the national issues with us into a midterm election and uh, and with um, a lot of things that could stress us out just use your use your time wisely and uh, and support one another and um, I think that's all I got hell yeah thank you so much Brian I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with me tonight yeah no thank you I, I it was a great conversation I've uh you know we should talk more <laughs> oh definitely for sure and uh hopefully we can cross paths again sometime soon yeah absolutely all right take it easy have a good night that's it we did it another episode in the books hope you enjoyed this conversation with Brian McDonald I learned a whole lot I'm really glad that he was willing to chat with me for so long and to put into perspective some of the things he's learned over the years and how he has been able to show up authentically and share his career his career not only in uh, the higher ed world but in the cosplay and comic world uh, very stoked that he is one of the people that I can call a really good friend and confidant in the field uh, especially since you know tattooed punks have slowly been infiltrating higher education so i find a nice little kinship in him as well if you like the tunes that you heard throughout this episode go to lilisthebandcamp.com go to take this to heart records.com and also go to disposable-america.com get yourself a physical copy get yourself a digital copy it'll be streaming next friday when it comes out officially safer off the new album from lilith please check it out and as always, we're part of the Connect EDU network. Go to connect.edu.
connectedu.network and check out all of the podcasts and all of the content that we are putting up there very consistently. As well, please check out artissurvival.com and learn more about my art-based uh, trauma survivor uh, nonprofit that does a lot to support folks in their healing process. And that's all I've got. We're getting into August. Got a couple episodes that are going to come out in August that I'm very excited about. Uh, the next conversation is going to be with a musician I'm very excited about uh, that I am friends with and does a lot of work for our nonprofit. So I'm just really stoked that um, I'm, I'm, the next conversation is going to be really cool. And I hope you all are really excited about it. I mean, I am. I'm, I'm just hyping it up right now. So if you've made it to this far, you're going to be hyped too, I hope. All right. That's all I got. Until next time, let's get to work.